0: Horatio Spafford hymn, correct? You know the context of when he wrote that? I believe he had just lost his family. Shipwreck. Could you imagine walking with the Lord and experiencing his grace to the extent that, right, on the heels of losing your family in an accident, you can sit down and pen the words to that hymn. Uh, I can't tell you uh, how wonderful the Lord is in planning out for us even the music that's played in worship as our special music in relationship to the context of what we're gonna be preaching on this morning. Um, uh, for some of us, that's our favorite hymn of all in our hymn books uh, because uh, you've allowed those words to minister to your heart uh, in your unique circumstances. And um, I trust that God's word now will um, be that foundation that we need uh, this morning to aid us in our greatest time of spiritual need. Because that's really what the context of Romans chapter eight verses 14 to 17 really is. How does God omnipotently come to our aid in our greatest time of need? How does God come to our spiritual aid in our greatest time of need? Anyone need a Bible to follow along with this morning, just raise your hand and our ushers will be glad to uh, give you a Bible, maybe you forgot that, in your car or at home, and we'd like to help you this morning. Keep your hands up and they'll find you. Right. Romans chapter 8, uh, let's read together uh, this morning, uh, verses 14 to 17. and um, I'll tell you what. Let's have, I know Gordon came up and read this text a week ago. Pastor Steve, can you pop up here and just read these verses for us real quickly this morning? And then we'll move on. Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. (laughs) For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to a fear again but you have received this spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Thank you. We've mentioned in weeks previous the various activities of the Godhead in Romans chapter eight. Uh, The last several times we were together, we were talking about the omnipotent activity of the Spirit of God in this text. That really is a whole chapter on uh, the believer's security, uh, the believer's um, assurance, spiritual assurances that we have because we are in Christ. And and we come now to uh, a study of uh, what it means to to know and relate with and uh, be involved with, uh, not just the spirit of life, the spirit who gives us life in Christ, but the the spirit of adoption. uh, The spirit of adoption. And understanding this particular Bible doctrine Uh, brings a tremendous amount of solace and comfort and peace to the human heart in any time of life, especially during times of personal catastrophe or tragedy or loss in our lives. We're going to take our time through these three verses. As a matter of fact, we're going to give two full weeks to these short verses. And uh, because I want us to uh, as fully as we possibly can understand how the Lord assures our heart during times of great loss and tragedy. And uh, again, we'll find out here just from the first word of verse 14 that this is a continuation of what all that we've studied in relationship to the spirit of life. We find ourselves... Primarily as passive participants in these three verses. Certainly we're going to highlight what our active participation is within what God has done for us on our behalf. You can't read the text without seeing that. But we continue on with the first word of verse 14 uh, and that word lets us know that we are still being secured by omnipotence. Safe and secure from all alarm. Some other things you'll notice about these verses in the weeks ahead, both this week and next. You'll notice for the first time in the book of Romans, the word son or sons or sonship is used. And I think it's great timing in relationship to the context of Romans chapter eight. Just um, the reminder that we've been taken from one family and placed into another in Jesus Christ. And and we have been benefited for that in so many reasons that we'll outline in just a little bit. We'll also notice that we are called children and we are called heirs in this context. The Apostle Paul takes this short passage and reminds us that we are beneficiaries of all the spiritual blessings that Christ is a beneficiary. All of them, all of them. And as he enjoys life among the Godhead, he's invited us to enjoy the same relationship and the same spiritual benefit. So let me divide these short verses up for us into uh, three different sections and this morning, We'll get through two of the three and leave verse 17, just verse 17, for next week alone. First of all, in verse 14, I'd like for us to see our reality in the spirit of adoption. Our reality, or your reality, in the spirit of adoption. In verses 15 and 16 that we'll see this morning, I would like to highlight our resolve as we enjoy the spirit of adoption. Our resolve. And then verse 17, which we'll study next week, we'll find out our resources. The resources that we enjoy in the spirit of adoption. Our reality, our resolve, and finally, our resources. So, our reality in the spirit, You know, I was watching uh, a program on television not long ago, and this was a child that had been uh, given up for adoption as an infant, and it was her lifelong desire, and many of you have read and seen these documentaries and periodicals or TV shows, I'm sure. Uh, she'd been uh, on a lifelong search for her real dad. It was very, very difficult to find, and... Um, Through DNA testing, um, they were finally able to locate her father. But her father had died and had obviously been buried. And they were able to, and to help this girl out, uh, exhume the body, take some DNA, and be able to uh, identify this girl with this dead man. But this this brought great uh, joy to her heart. She finally knew who her real father was. She really knew who to biologically identify with. While she was sad, she was never able to meet him. All right? There's this longing that God's put in every man's heart to know who their father is. There's this longing that God puts in all of our hearts because we're made in the image of God to relate with our father. Now think about that. He's made all of us in our image. And what does the father enjoy from the Godhead? Relationship, communication, fellowship. They've been enjoying one another for all of eternity. So when he recreates us in his image, there's a longing that we naturally, supernaturally have to fellowship with our fathers, to know them, to relate with them. And this testing, some would call it paternity testing, that we have in our culture, and we utilize it for numerous means, Uh, but for this gal that settled her heart um, and meant a great deal for her. What are we finding out in verse 14? We're finding out in verse 14 how we can prove. It's our paternity test. (laughs) This is our reality as we enjoy life in the spirit to know what life as reality is as we are adopted by the Spirit of God into the family of God. And the the context is very, very clear here. It says, all who are being led by the Spirit. This is paternity test number one. I'd like to emphasize just real briefly the word all. Okay. We're all in Christ Jesus, if we've been born again. So all who are kept omnipotently, by the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, all who are walking in the Spirit will be governed by the Spirit because they've been adopted by the Spirit. Every single one, all are described how? All who are being led by the Spirit of God. All who are being led by the Spirit of God. Now certainly no that the adoption of the Spirit is different than the baptism of the Spirit that we studied in Romans chapter six. It's different than the filling of the Spirit that we see in Ephesians four, and the seal, Ephesians five, and it's different than the sealing of the Spirit that we see in Ephesians four. This is a unique act of the Spirit of God that's exclusive from those other ministries of the Spirit of God that are done for us subjectively the moment that we're born again. What does that mean? Is this something that God the Spirit does for us we can't do for ourselves? The moment we're born again. We're adopted and we know that we're adopted and because we're led by him. So what does it mean to be led by the spirit in the scriptures? We'll study a little bit later, Romans 12, one and two, that the spirit of God's work on our heart um, and we'll study later in Romans chapter eight that it's God the spirit's desire for us to be renewed in our minds. This is what he does. And he does so so that we might more comprehensively and gradually know revealed truth in the Bible. We'll find out a little bit later in this text that we know that we're being led by the Spirit because the Spirit will stir our hearts to communicate with the Father. How do we know we're being Spirit-led? We're growing in the truth of the word. We're growing in our desire to communicate with the Father, we know that from Ephesians chapter five that we're seeking his governance of our lives. We know from Galatians chapter five that we're exuding his fruit, love, joy, peace, longsuffering, gentleness, meekness. How do you know you're being led? This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible, this is, this is, these are your paternity tests. Have you been adopted into the family? Do you love the word? Do you love praying the Father? Does he stir your heart to do so? Is he stirring your heart to do so? Are you governed by him? Are you exuding his character in your life? Anyone that is adopted can be and should be compelled by omnipotence to be led By the Spirit of God. The verse goes on to say, well, these are the sons. If you really want to know, right? Um, Separating the spiritual men from the boys, right? If you really want to know what separates us, these are the sons of God. And again, this is the first time the word sons is used in the book of Romans. It is to inform us that we have a new relationship with our Creator now, and it's a family relationship. The church of Rome was a multi-ethnic, multinational church. And this would have spoken volumes to these people. I'd like to just tell you real quickly here that every church should be, every church gathering for worship should be a gathering that's representative of its community. If we're truly evangelizing our community in a way that would please the Lord, then there ought to be Uh, souls worshiping together every week with us that are born again, that are representative of the multinational, multi-ethnic representations in our own community. And I praise God, the more we seek to personally evangelize, our friends, our neighbors, reach out and help Christians who are in the area, the more and more our church is beginning and continually continuing to become representative of our community. So think about this, the Roman church, if you go back to Romans chapter one, two, and three, we know for certain that it was multiethnic and multiracial because the because of the how uh, how Paul lays out the gospel to these people. They were religious Jews and irreligious um, Greeks and Gentiles, right? and and uh, people of multiple languages, right? all under. One roof is one body, and Paul's saying the gospel is necessary for everybody, regardless of your background. Right? And, uh, and these people came to know Christ, and he's delivering the word to them, and they're called for the first time in church history, sons. You're all on an equal plane. Regardless of your creed, your race, your tongue, your ethnicity, your educational background, You are all now sons. Just like they're called Christians for the first time in the book of Acts, they're called sons for the first time here in human history of the church. And just like I said last week, that life in the Spirit being omnipotently changed by the Spirit giving, the the life that only the Spirit can give can, can, can overpower any type of sin influence in our lives. I really believe this one word here. Those who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons. Salvation, understanding the spirit of adoption in this particular doctrine, is even the cure for racism in our culture. It is. Because all of us, regardless of our background, are sons. In Jesus Christ, amen? Amen. You know Christ, we're sons. We're on an equal plane. We're on an equal plane. So before people come to know Christ as their savior, God only sees two kinds of people, those who know Jesus and those who don't. When they come to know Christ as their savior, they're all sons and that's all he sees. They're sons and daughters. And we're welcome in his home. And we're welcome in the household of faith. Um, Some time ago, my wife and I, when we were first married, had the opportunity to visit one of my father-in-law's friends in Michigan. Uh, This was a very, very wealthy man. This man was one of the most relaxed, laid-back, carefree men I'd ever met in my life. And um, when we came into his home, I'd never met him before. It's a new wife. It's his, it's her dad's. Best friend in Michigan, and he wants us to come stay overnight in his house, in this palace.? right? Um, this guy made hundreds of thousands of dollars, and to his verbal testimony to me, the particular morning after we stood overnight, we woke up and we were having coffee. He would just sit and watch the, the I think it was the Fox Business channel. He just watched the ticker tape, and he would just pick up his phone, and he would call his money guy. And he put his phone down. He goes, I just made a million bucks. Isn't that cool? As a young guy, right, I just like, he goes, can I refill your coffee? Well, 20 minutes later, he's watching the screen some more. Picks up the phone. Yeah, make, sell it. Right? I didn't want to hear what he had to say next. He looked over. He goes, I don't know how much I just made with that call. He said 40000 I was like, man, you got to be kidding me. You want some more scrambled eggs? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Right. His wife's just doting around the kitchen. And he goes, yeah, that's how I make my life. So your dad and I go hunting, we go fishing, and I sit and watch TV and I make money. I'm making phone calls. And, and Tim, anytime you're coming through this part of the state of Michigan, if you don't stop by my house and let us treat you, it's your own fault. Everything that is ours is what? Yours. I say, like, oh no, 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 This is yours. No. And he said, look around the kitchen. He said, you stayed in our basement. Look around the basement. Everything that's ours is yours. I want you to feel like you're one of my sons anytime you come to my home. I said, Well, I don't know you, Val. He said, I don't care. He said, You're a son in law of Ron Ray's. you're a son of mine. Everything that's mine's yours. Well, that's what happens positionally when we're adopted into God's family. Everything that is the son of God's is now ours, so we're at home. (laughs) We're called sons, and we're identified as sons, right? The paternity test by how we live, and we highlighted those for sure, and this is our reality, This is our reality. So he establishes that fact for us before he goes on and he gets really, really personal. That's the position that we have. That's the life we live because we have that position. Now he gets even more personal as we head on into our second and final point this morning, our resolve. As a result of understanding this reality and being welcomed in as sons, this is our reality. You have not received, remember, we're passive participants at the start. That's what the grammar tells us here. He's reminding you, you have not received Roman citizens, now sons of God in Christ. You have not received Grace Church of Mentor, sons and daughters of God, a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba Father. Now I'd like for you to cross reference in the margin of your Bible next to verses 15 and 16 Galatians 4 verses 1 to 6. Because the wording is not identical but it's pretty close from Romans 8 verses 15 and 16 to Romans, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 to 6. I'm not going to go there and read it. I'll highlight it again here in just a little bit. But the Apostle Paul gives almost the exact same wording to two different churches for two different purposes. He gives it to the Galatian church as a reminder by way of corrective. He's got something to correct in that church because they've slipped back into Judaism and they've slipped back into possibly believing a false gospel that you can get to heaven through works, through adhering to the Mosaic covenant again. And he calls that gospel accursed. And he reminds them in Galatians 4 that they've been adopted, they've been made free. They're not enslaved to that law anymore. But here in the Roman church, remember, in all 16 chapters, he doesn't bring any indictment or criticism against this church. This is given to them as healthy people who at times come across various tragedies and difficulties and times of loss in their life. And he's reminding them in this church That they've been, their reality is they've been adopted into this family. That's their reality. And now this becomes the resolve. This is what happens. He says, You have not been, you have not received the spirit of slavery. The spirit here is in reference to the human spirit. This is one of the couple times in in the chapter, it's in reference to the human spirit. You haven't received the spirit of slavery. This is the description of what we used to be in our unconverted state. And we know that that spirit of slavery, that slavery to sin, that slavery to the law was a a spirit of fear. Uh, When you exist under the law trying to work your way to heaven, you always are in fear, wondering if I've done enough to please God. You're living a religious-filled, guilt-tripped life. It's a spirit of fear. Before you come to know Christ, you might be irreligious and you're still living in fear because you really don't know what happens when you breathe your last on this earth. You're kind of left to the wisdom of man to figure that out, and that's never eternally and finally satisfying. And Paul says, remember, you haven't been given that spirit. And cross-reference in the margin of your Bible if you want 1 John chapter four, okay? 1 John chapter four, right? what does the Bible say? God has not given us a spirit of fear, right? Because love casts out fear. And What does he mean in 1 John four? He simply means this, when you come to know the love of God in Christ Jesus, you're a son and the fear of death, the fear of failure is gone. It's positionally gone. The perfect love of God in Christ you've received. And as God treats his son, he now treats you. There is no fear in that kind of love. You haven't received the spirit of slavery leading to fear, and it always leads to fear. Life outside of Christ is full of the unknown, so therefore, full of fear. This is not what we received. So Paul says we have received something here, and that's the spirit of adoption. This is the Holy Spirit. The human spirit leads to slavery and fear. The Holy Spirit is doing something omnipotently here on our behalf. This is not, again, the regeneration of the Spirit where he takes us from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. This is the adoption of the Spirit. And we're going to explain exactly what this means. And I would ask you for the next um, 15 to 20 minutes to really hang on because it gets wonderfully detailed through here. We always have to understand in the New Testament how the original hearers heard the message and how they would have applied it. Because the same way they heard it and applied it, that's the same way we have, that's the same thing we have to do, right? So this gets, this gets really, really good. So as Pastor Steve has already read and I've already read, let's talk about adoption. We have to understand something here, that the Jewish mind knew nothing about adoption. Adoption was not a family practice in, this, in the Old Testament culture. You folks that know your Bibles well understand how the Jewish community would have taken care of fatherless children. They didn't know anything about adoption. So for the Messianic Jew, the the converted Jew that's sitting in the Roman auditorium, he's hearing something that was not sourced in his personal national history, but he would have known about it from his current legal history. Uh, environment in relationship to families in a Greco-Roman environment because in a Greco-Roman environment this is where the reality of adoption began. So the root word here for adoption is where we get our English word son but it's a longer word than just the Greek word huias. It's a word that's translated adoption but this is how the Roman believer would have heard it. In a Greco-Roman environment, if a son was fatherless or parentless and they were adopted into a family, legally in this environment, this is what it literally meant. Everything that the father had in his current possession and everything that the father's biological children would have had a right to this child from another family now adopted into their family would have had equal right and access to what the father had and what the biological children had. He was written into the will as an absolute child or son. So when Paul is reassuring the Roman heart right here, he's saying you've received omnipotent adoption into a family. So everything that the father of that family enjoys with his son, Jesus Christ, you now are a co-heir with that son. You have been forever written into the will. And everything that's Jesus's is now yours, both in position and in eternity. That's set. That's done. That's nothing you had anything to do with nothing you had anything to do with. It's all yours. It's like, wow. Are you kidding me? (laughs) No, it's all yours. You're an equal son. This is is what else a Greco-Roman mind would have understood. It's not only all equally yours. If a baby was adopted into a family, that's the resources and the reality of the will. That baby would have been adopted as if he was an adult son, So in this culture, there even would have been children who had been emancipated from their parents' homes whose parents may have died and they wanted to have an association with a family. They could have gone through a legal adoption process just because they wanted to have part in a family and even as an adopted adult son, they had all the rights and privileges of that family. So spiritually speaking, it's the same for us. This is what the spirit of adoption does for us. God confers upon all of us the rights and privileges that Jesus Christ has. One commentator explained it this way. When we are saved, God gives us all the wealth, opportunity, and responsibilities of a fully adult son. Leon Morris goes on to say in his commentary, Adoption signified being granted the full rights and privileges of sonship in a family to which one does not belong to by nature. It's interesting. or We are called spiritual babies in the word when we're first saved, yet we're treated as spiritual adult sons and daughters in Christ Jesus. This is certainly something that the abundant grace of God supplies for us in our position in Jesus Christ, adult privileges. Now that we understand that a bit more about the all-powerful act of the Holy Spirit's adoption upon us, we must understand that this relationship, all right, like any meaningful relationship is only continued through healthy communication, healthy communication, all right? So let's go on. Uh, It gets even more helpful and more exciting as we conclude uh, this morning. As adult children in Christ, God grants us not just the ability to speak to him, but the opportunity to enjoy his presence at any moment, just as his son, Jesus Christ, has for all of eternity. As an adult child, we have the opportunity to relate to our creator, God the Father, in very mature and endearing terms, such as given here in our passage. It says here in the context... Right? by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Familiar terms to many of you that know your Bibles well, but let's understand how they would have understood it in this context uh, because it really comes alive and personal. I don't know if you know this or not, but when the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9 how to pray, he says this is how you pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You have to understand there was something else that was completely foreign to a Jewish context in the Old Testament. Never never once in the Old Testament will you find a believer personally addressing God as father. Nationally, Israel's known as having God as their father, politically. Nationally, the text, the Bible says in the book of Jeremiah, I believe, that, that God had adopted them as sons into his national political family. But never once was a believer in the Old Testament, found addressing God as Father, and never once would he have ever heard a believer in the Old Testament call themselves a son of God. So these are new realities for the first century local church, and they remain our realities today. So when, God, when Jesus is teaching us how to pray, he's actually teaching us how to pray. For the first time, Re- regardless whether you're Jewish or regardless whether you're Gentile, in me, we, together, are allowed to address the Father the way I have addressed the Father personally for all of eternity, and now because you know me, I invite you to do the same. Isn't that amazing? The Old Testament believer would have never, it would have been completely countercultural. As a matter of fact, even for the believer, it would have been sacrilege, for them to call God, Father. No, no, no. Politically, nationally, okay, but I don't have access to his presence like that. This is really a large part what got Jesus, in a lot of trouble. <laughs> when he's out in public teaching them to pray in the Father, the Pharisees and the religious Jews are like, whoa, 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 whoa. What you're saying is, think about this, what you're saying is, Jesus, that you're God in flesh. You can't do that. There's only one person that calls God father and that's the son and you ain't him. Well, yes, I am. As a matter of fact, all that know me are gonna address him the same way. How special is that? Isn't that amazing? What a tremendous blessing. but he goes deeper here. It says here before we call out to God as Father, we address him as Abba Father. Well, the first person in scripture ever to pray to Father as Abba Father was Jesus also. Was Jesus also. In Mark chapter 14, in verse 36, we find the Lord Jesus Christ crying out to the Father in extreme time of need. You understand the context there, nearing his death. But it's interesting here. The word Abba is found nowhere in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scripture, so this term, too, was also foreign to the Jewish Old Testament believer. They would have not known what it meant. But he didn't use a Greek term here. He didn't use a Hebrew term here. Abba is an Aramaic term. So think about this. Not just in relationship to Matthew 6 with the Lord's Prayer and addressing God as Father. Think about this in Mark 14 in relationship to calling him Abba he's really teaching a lesson to all who are around him, whether Jew or Gentile, that you all have a desperate need for me and only through me can you address the Father who exclusively can omnipotently care for the spiritual needs of your soul and the practical needs of your life. And being fully God and fully man, nearing his death in the agony of that hour, In that time, in the Garden of Gethsemane, while he weeps droplets of blood, he cries out, Daddy, for all of eternity, my Father, if you would allow this cup to pass from me. Roman Environment, chapter 8, verses 15 and 16 Anytime this word Abba is used and directly relating to the Father, it's always with exclamatory emotion. Right? This is not a term, you're welcome to use it daily, but within the context of Scripture, it's in the Scripture, it's used in an exclamatory emotional way, demonstrating for us that there are times in our life where we have this guttural, hang on with me here, right? This guttural supernaturally natural reaction to cry out to the exclusive divine one who only can help us in a time of need. We're not gonna go there and read it, but I want you to read again for yourself Galatians 4, 1-6 because guess what Paul tells us? And you have to get a good biblical theology. You've got to connect the two passages together, all right? Because Mark 14, Romans 8, and Galatians 4 are three times in the New Testament where this term Abba is used in relationship to prayer. But in Galatians chapter 4, guess what? The Bible says that God has given us the spirit of adoption. Hang on with me here, you're right, we're almost done. It's the spirit of adoption who cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father. It's not us. So think about that. The first person to use this term of endearment in human history is the Lord Jesus Christ in an extreme time. But there's someone also in the Godhead that was used to using this term, and it's the Spirit of God. Now think about this theologically. You're hanging out with me still? I keep saying that, but we're almost done. Right? Think about this. Think about the intimate communication in the Godhead. Think about in Jesus Christ, that intimate communication, he now offers that Same communication to us. But think about this John 14 to 16, when Jesus is announcing his departure, and he says, I'm going to be taken away from you, but I'm going to send to you another comforter, another paraclete, and he defines the Holy Spirit like this He's just like me. And when we're born again, we're adopted into the family of God, the spirit of adoption. And what is the spirit of adoption already doing for us and preparing us to do in extreme time of need? The spirit of God's crying out for us, just like the Lord Jesus Christ illustrated for us in his own life. Abba, Father, Daddy, there's no one else on this planet that can help me with this issue but you. Not my wife, not my husband, not my children, not a church member, not my pastor. There's nobody here that can fulfill this practical, spiritual hole and need in my life like you can. Abba Father. I had uh, eight orthopedic surgeries before I graduated from high school. God providentially took away my whole athletic career before I was a junior in high school. And um, I battled often with that. I'd be a liar if I told you I still didn't battle with it sometimes today. Because right? I love sports. And um, I can remember that final time I got hurt. You know, you get hurt the first seven times and you have seven surgeries. You got some stuff in you that just dis- dis- well, I don't know, whatever, this guy stuff that's just driving to heal and get back on the field and get back on the court and no one's going to stop me. I'm going to come back stronger than ever. But there was something about that eighth time. Right? And I got hurt and I knew I was hurt. There's a difference between being hurt and injured. I was injured. Hurt is something you can get up one limp away from. Injured is you fall and you can't get up and you're not going to be getting up for a while. I knew I was injured. And all I could remember doing was grabbing my leg and just crying, Dad, 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 Dad! It was just, just what came out. Apparently in my mind, having been created in God's image, there was only one person in my human life that could help me like no other. It was my dad. And the Spirit of God cries out that for us, and our, he, he compels our heart. He's doing this along with us. He's doing this for us. He's doing it. Right. In times of extreme need, what are some of those times of extreme need? We all know what those are. When we don't under, understand a passage of Scripture and our souls are groaning over it, we're meditating over it, and all of a sudden, what does the spirit of adoption do? "Daddy, help me with this. I got to know. I got to know." When someone close to us who walked with the Lord at one time turns away from the Lord and no one around us can console our hearts, there's no one like Papa Father who can do that. When catastrophe strikes our lives and leaves us speechless, this is what the Spirit cries out for us and compels us to cry, Daddy, help. When someone we've been praying for rejects the gospel and you say, Oh Lord, when? When will they hear When will you tear tear the, peel the scales from their eyes? When will you open their ears to hear, Daddy, help them! Papa, help me. And this invitation, just by illustration of a prayer, is a gospel invitation to both Jew and Greek. You can have this type of relationship with the Father, but only through the Son who communicates with him like that. Amen. This is our resolve. This is our resolve. And it's as if Jesus introduces a glorious opportunity for each and every person who comes to him in repentance and faith. The truth is plain to see when we connect the word for adoption to the term Abba, we can quickly see that God offers us the same rights and privileges that offers the Son, both in position and in communication. But let me highlight a couple truths in verse 16 in the last two minutes of our sermon this morning. It says here, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children, as if we haven't had enough of the Spirit's ministry to us just yet. <laughs> What's the Spirit of God doing He's doing something for us again that we cannot do for ourselves. He takes the initiative to bear witness with our spirit that we are his. We are secure. I think it was Warren Wiersbe in his title of this particular section of the book of Romans. He says every Christian has to understand that we don't have the spirit. The spirit has us. (laughs) Right, And this is one final layer. He testifies. Now, folks, I don't want to get all spooky here. A lot of authors, I would encourage you to study this out on your own. A lot of authors fear handling this particular verse. Because a lot of Christians get involved with this esoterical, mystical, uh, subjective way of communicating with the Father. But that's not what the Bible's saying here. His Spirit testifies with our spirit. How does he do that according to the Scripture? Okay? How does he do that? Well, I think he does it in the following ways. We know that the Bible tells us that the spirit of God illumines our hearts, right? He's a great divine illuminator. What does illumination mean? It means that he takes the significance of the written page, right? And makes it, uh, he takes the significance of the written page and applies it to our hearts. That's illumination. That's when you say, oh boy, that verse just jumped off the page at me, right? That's what it means that he testifies that we're his children, In a personal time of study, recognizing this kind of truth in a sermon, in life when we are tempted and scripture aids us to fight against that particular sin, right? We're all told, Psalm 119, 9 through 11, hide God's word in your heart and that will keep you from sin, right? That's the spirit of God using the word of God to take the child of God and assist him. That's what it means to testify. He testifies with our spirit that we are his children. So if that's going on in your life, in a sermon, in personal study, in a time of temptation, in a time of struggle and sorrow, and the Bible is used to pillow our hearts with assurance and comfort... Told you the story a long time ago. My wife went to a Christian school and she had a Christian history teacher, and that Christian history teacher made a sexual pass at her in a Christian school. And it scared her to death as a junior in high school. And she told me, Tim, I ran home and I got in my room, I covered my head, I turned on my flashlight, and that night I read the whole book of Psalms. The Spirit testifies with your spirit that you're a child. You're a child through the Word. In a time of great victory, the Word anchors our hearts in God's reality for us because times when we see God do something amazing among us, even then we have to be uh, channeled, tempered, guardrailed, if you will, to not go outside the content of the meaning of Scripture, but let Scripture still speak to us. So whether in agony or in victory, God, the Spirit, testifies that we are the sons of God right through the practical usage of his word. And that's our resolve, to bask in the glory of that, testif- that, that testimony, that testifying. That's our reality in the spirit of adoption. That's our resolve in the spirit of adoption. And we're not even close to being done yet because next week we finish with our resources. But I trust that's been an encouragement to your heart today. Let's pray together.